0: Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Thursday, October 6th, and it will begin airing on Sunday, October 9th, 2022. My name is Reese Robinson. I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Emily Scott and Jasmine Smith. How is it going, ladies?
1: Hello. Hello, hello. And today is actually, its this is the last of, official time maybe not the last time ever that Reese and I will be on the show with Jasmine on a weekly basis Aww,
0: I the trumpets. Like, oh. yeah.
2: yeah I'm gonna insert the that song it's so hard to say goodbye I, to yesterday.
0: <laughs> I thought we could gave-
1: forever gone away it's so hard to say goodbye to yesterday okay.
0: yeah yeah so you know. go. it's been so much fun know. it really has it's been a great run though we're always reporting sad stuff it's
1: and, yeah it spikes my anxiety sometimes and yeah sometimes we, you know the good news segment was a great idea i think that was reese's idea yeah and we i think yeah a little bit yeah that's like ending on a, a high note every once in a while and yeah and we started off live in the studio in 2019 as a team taking on the show from from our ancestors our objection to the rural ancestors and transitioned into this format during COVID. Yeah, it's been a ride.
2: Yeah, we were talking before we started recording that this has kind of been, at least my tenure with the show, mm-hmm. it's been kind of like a, a weird record almost of the pandemic because mm-hmm. you, Emily, and Reese both started with the show in earlier 2019. I came on closer to the end of 2019. I think this is close to my anniversary. I think it was about fall time, 2019. Mm-hmm. Oh, and wow. then, you know, we all know what happened in the winter mm-hmm. of 2019. Spooky. And then after. So, yeah, it'll be something. You can always go back and listen to all our old episodes from that time and kind of hear how the show changed and, you know, how it affected wh- how we recorded, what we talked about, what's been going on with our lives i consider you my friends now yeah definitely. but you know it will be good for the historical record like that we have all these episodes yeah. from this period like it's really interesting you know With, not many yeah. people have something like that
1: yeah what a cool way of thinking about it because we've been t- like almost weekly we well 2020 and Almost all of 2020 and 2021, I feel like we were recording weekly, and then we had other team members at the beginning of the pandemic too.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. And yeah. Then,
2: there was Matt, there mm-hmm. was Sarah, mm-hmm. and then Zoe. I think was maybe on one episode,
1: mm-hmm. right? And we've had and we, guests on, yeah,
0: yeah. And when I first started, Violet was our host, yes. so that was back then. Ooh. Shout out, to Violet. Yeah, you. She,
1: <laughs> she left before you came on, Jasmine. I think. Yeah, I don't know yeah. if you ever. Violet, Violet it was who was, well, I, so <laughs> I knew I wanted to try out radio stuff, you know, and, and the cool opportunity of being in the studio in that environment. And I remember I went to one of the mixers and Tom, um, this is the, one of the co-founders of the station told me about the show and how, you know, they're always looking for people to help with research or whatever. So I, I showed up for an episode with Violet and expecting just to like observe and, you know, be assigned something to research. And she just put me on the air the first episode and it, you know, never looked back. It, and it's sort of, I think the very much the, the style of the show, which is like, we're all just, you know, all just sort of anyone who's there bringing what they have to the table, you know, and, and people coming with ideas and, and playing with, you know, the flow of the show? Because it's definitely evolved a lot since we started Reese, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, just like switching up the way that the show was delivered, I think, um, during the pandemic, offered us other opportunities to feature guests, our whole partnership with NYU. Um, It really has evolved to something um, of its own, you know, Mm -hmm. this leg of the run. And the original... Um, creator one of the original creators of the show Ori was actually from Ohio which was a little tie that I had and we had an opportunity to talk to him throughout and um, he was just really grateful that the show kept going so you know you you girls are awesome I am so grateful for every part that we've all played you know it's not easy uh, putting together the show shout out to Jasmine who's been mm-hmm. an amazing engineer yeah. uh, oh my god that's resume talk Girl, Girl, yes, holding it down. You know, you've been holding it down and I appreciate yeah. you so much for many months. The show was ranking very high at the station as well. So, mm-hmm.
1: yeah, we've had I I don't know what the history of the show's rankings are, but I know that um, as a team, as we started coming together, we were we would be top of the top 10 a bunch of times, you know, of the whole station, not just talk shows. And we've rarely fallen out of the top 10 of the talk shows um since I've started paying attention to that. So, you know, shout out to the listeners, <laughs> to everyone exactly. who keeps checking in and to get their, you know, their daily dose of whatever we think is interesting to talk about on the news.
2: October 31st, 2019. Halloween.
1: Yeah, y'all, check this out. So
2: proud of everyone. This is the first time OTR has ranked since I've been involved. This is huge. Congrats team. And that uh, was because we were in the top. I think we were in the top ten. Amazing, oh, September
1: twenty
2: nineteen. And Who we sent even, them? yeah? You sent that email. I sent that. Okay, yeah. okay great. It sounds like an Emily in me
1: email. Yeah. Okay, great. That does sound like me. I was going to say that oh, sounds. Trying to do
2: your voice.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I, love I love. I love being the center of attention. So thank you for the impression. Um, but I yeah. So I guess so. I started around spring. So yeah. So yeah, that's awesome. And then and then from there, I think we were number one over the whole station at least once. I can't remember when, but that was a cool yeah, week. Yeah. We've
2: been doing decent numbers, you know, yeah. for our little show. So I'm I'm proud of us, you know, and mm-hmm. we'll we'll keep in touch and everything for sure, but just yeah. won't be exactly the same.
1: As much as um, you know, for Reese and I that it's, you know, it's our time to transition away. I'm really excited that, you know, Jasmine um, we'll be carrying the show into its next iteration and that's going to look like something new and different. And I think that'll also be good for the show too, you know, to like, I think it's really cool that it, it continues to evolve. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And, and I'm grateful for, you know, all of the adjustments we've all had to make to make it work. Um, as you may know, Emily and I are not living in New York right now. Mm -hmm. So, making this show happen each week is a bit of a task for all of yeah. us to try to fit the time frame. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it was cool that we, I mean, the, the transition away from the in-person studio, like afforded us the opportunity to, to switch our personal lives so drastically while still continuing the show. And that was a cool opportunity, but it's, it's been hard. Our, Reese, what's our time difference? I think we're like, we're a nine hour time difference from each other.
0: Yeah. You know what's so funny? I think how far, what's your time difference in New York from New York right now? I'm si-
1: I'm six hours different from New York.
0: Okay. So I'm actually in Hawaii right now. From oh, America, so it's dang. Nine hours. Yes.
1: Different. So <laughs> you and I are like almost 24 hours difference right now.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, that's why.
1: Your day's ending. Like, yeah. Yeah.
0: So- it's just been a lot, uh, to try to make it work, but you know, shout out to you girls for making it work as much as we've done and all the different ways we've tried to make this happen. This has been a great opportunity when I was an undergrad, I really wanted to be on radio I intern. Mm-hmm. Um, so being able to do this in my adult life just really, uh, brought me joy and I really enjoyed it. You really enjoyed doing the music and just, just all of it all together. So I'm going to miss you girls, but hopefully Thank I'll be you. able to contribute every once in a while. Um, once things slowed out a little bit of my life
1: yeah yeah same i this i'm not this is not like a forever forever goodbye um just for the the every week it's you know i think it's it's yeah time to transition into to jasmine's next iteration of objection to the rule
2: you know, you were talking about the time difference and it reminded me, I was like, the show is like Doctor Who. It's like, <laughs> it's like the time traveling doctor, but it's the yeah. same show kind of, or roughly the same universe,
0: yeah. but yeah. You know,
2: just different mm-hmm. people that carry it to the next step.
0: All right. So with that being said, let's hop in today's episode. Uh, for our local news segment, we're going to be talking about the professor at NYU who was recently fired because of the difficulty of his organic chemistry class. Our national news story is going to be about the continued impact of Hurricane Ian on Florida and the surrounding communities. And then our world news story is going to be about the new prime minister in Italy. So we're going to go ahead and kick off today's episode with our local news segment, Emily, Europe.
1: Alrighty, righty. So this story comes from an October 3rd, 2022 New York Times story. Um, also, shout out. That's my dad's birthday is Mean Girls Day, October 3rd. Anyway, um, happy birthday, dad. So this story is by Stephanie Saul titled um, At NYU, Students Were Failing Organic Chemistry. Who Was to Blame? Uh, Maitland Jones Jr., a respected professor, defended his standards, but students are but students started a petition and the university dismissed him. The article explains: quote, in the field of organic chemistry, Maitland Jones Jr. has a storied reputation. He taught the subject for decades, first at Princeton and then at New York University, and wrote an influential textbook. He received awards for his teaching as well as recognition as one of NYU's coolest professors. But last spring, as the campus emerged from pandemic restrictions, 82 of his 350 students gained a pe- signed a petition against him. Students said the high-stakes course, notorious for ending many a dream of, hi- of medical school, was too hard, blaming Dr. Jones for their poor test scores. The professor defended his standards, but just before the start of the fall semester, university deans terminated Dr. Jones's contract. The officials also had tried to placate the students by offering to review their grades and allowing them to withdraw from the class retroactively. The chemistry department's chairman, Mark E. Tuckerman, said the unusual offer to withdraw was a one-time exception granted to students by the dean of the college. Mark A. Walters, director of undergraduate studies in the chemistry department, summed up the situation in an email to Dr. Jones before his firing. He said the plan would extend a gentle but firm hand to the students and those who pay the tuition bills, an apparent reference to parents. Uh, "Quote: The deans are obviously going for some bottom line, and they want happy students who are saying great things about the university, or, about the university, so more people apply and the U.S. news rankings keep going higher," said Paramit Arora. Aurora, a chemistry professor who has worked closely with Dr. Jones. In short, this one unhappy chemistry class could be a case study of the pressures on higher education as it tries to handle its Gen Z student body. Should universities ease pressure on students, many of whom are still coping with the pandemic's effects on their mental health and schooling? Uh, How should universities respond to the increasing number of complaints by students against professors? Do students have too much power over contract faculty members who do not have the protections of tenure? And how hard should organic chemistry be anyway? Dr. Jones, 84, is known for changing the way the subject is taught. In addition to writing the 1,300-page textbook, Organic Chemistry, now in its fifth edition, he pioneered a new method of instruction that relied less on rote memorization and more on problem solving. After retiring from Princeton in in 2007, he taught organic chemistry at NYU on a series of yearly contracts. About a decade ago, he said in an interview, he noticed a loss of focus among the students, even as more of them enrolled in his class, hoping to pursue medical careers. Quote, the problem was exacerbated exacerbated by the pandemic, he said. In the last two years, they fell off a cliff, he wrote. We now see single-digit scores and even zeros. After several years of COVID learning loss, the students not only didn't study, they didn't seem to know how to study, Dr. Jones said. Quote, Kent Kirschenbaum, another chemistry professor at NYU, said he discovered cheating during online tests. When he pushed students' grades down, noting the egregious misconduct, he said they protested that they were not given grades that would allow them to get into medical school. By spring 2022, the university was returning with fewer COVID restrictions, but the anxiety continued and students seemed disengaged. disengaged. Uh, quote students could choose between two sections one focused on problem solving the other on traditional lectures students in both sections shared problems on a group meet chat and began venting about the class those texts kick-started the petition submitted in may we are very concerned about our scores and find that they are not an accurate reflection of the time and effort put into this class the petition said the students criticized dr jones's decision to reduce the number of midterm exams from three to to flattening their chances to compensate for low grades. They said that he had tried to conceal course averages, did not offer extra credit, and removed Zoom access to his lectures, even though some students had COVID. And they said that he had a condescending and demanding tone. We urge you to realize, the petition said, that a class with such a high percentage of withdrawals and low grades has failed to make students' learning and well-being a priority, and reflects poorly on the chemistry department as well as the institution as a whole. Dr. Jones said in an interview that he reduced the number of exams because the university scheduled the first test date after six classes, which was too soon. On the accusation that he concealed course averages, Dr. Jones said that they were impossible to provide because 25% of the grade relied on lab scores and a final lab test, but that students were otherwise aware of their grades. As for Zoom access, he said the technology in the lecture hall made it impossible to record his whiteboard problems. Zachariah Benslemagne, a teaching assistant in the problem-solving section of the course, defended Dr. Jones in an email to university officials. I think this petition was written more out of unhappiness with exam scores than an actual feeling of being treated unfairly, he wrote Mr. Benslemagne, now a PhD student at Harvard. I have noticed that many of the students who consistently complained about the class did not use the resources we afforded to them. Uh, Ryan Jew, who took the course, said he found Dr. Jones both likable and inspiring. Um, and essentially, this guy said that, you know, it's mostly students who were upset by their scores, most likely. Um, Quote, after the second midterm for which the average hovered around 30%, they said that many feared for their futures. One student was hyperventilating. But students also described being surprised that Dr. Jones was fired, a measure that a measure the petition did not request and students did not think was possible. The entire controversy seems to illustrate a sea change in teaching from an era when professors set the bar and expected the class to meet it to the current more supportive student-centered approach. Quote, NYU is evaluating so-called stumble courses, stumble courses, those in which a higher percentage of students get D's and F's, said John Beckman, a spokesman for the university. Uh, Quote, in August, Dr. Jones received a short note from Gregory um, Gabadadzi, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong, um, dean for science, terminating his contract. Dr. Jones's performance, he wrote, did not rise to the standards we require from our teaching faculty. Dr. Gabadadzi declined to be interviewed, but Mr. Beckman defended the decision, saying that Dr. Jones had been the target of multiple student complaints about his dismissiveness, unresponsiveness, condescension, and opacity about grading. Dr. Jones's course evaluations, he added, were by far the worst, not only among members of the chemistry department, but among all the university's undergraduate science courses. Professors in the chemistry department have pushed back. In a letter to Dr. Gabadadze and other deans, they wrote that they worried about setting a precedent completely lacking in due process that could undermine faculty freedoms and correspondingly enfeeble proven pedagogic practices. It's a mouthful. Uh, quote Nathaniel J. Trasith, one of about 20 chemistry professors, mostly tenured, who signed the letter, said the university's actions may deter rigorous instruction especially given the growing tendency of students to file petitions. Now, the faculty who are not tenured are looking at this case and thinking, wow, what if this happens to me and they don't renew my contract, he said. Dr. Jones agrees. I don't want my job back, he said, adding that he had planned to retire soon anyway. I just want to make sure this doesn't happen to anyone else. And that is the story from the New York Times. I thought it was very interesting and also ties to... One of the recent stories I did on the show about the U.S. news and world rankings of Columbia University and essentially how like higher education is very much a business. And this is a really, you know, and how I think this is a really interesting angle on that and how it will affect your education, the education of the next generation if the bottom line is really what matters in these like big businesses of universities. You know, if the review, if getting like a, a review in that way is what, you know, makes or breaks someone's job there. It's pretty wild. What do you guys think?
0: Yeah, I was thinking about that story when you were reading it. Um, and it kind of mentioned some of the things that we spoke about a little bit also about, you know, students now being different than before as well. But for a professor who is constantly getting, you know, this type of feedback, there should definitely, and I'm sure they did due diligence, at least I hope they did, where someone else from the faculty or curriculum management team would, you know, see what the professor's doing, look at the content, see if the grading is um, fair to the students. But the fact that so many people were affected by it, that's that's a lot. And I think that, you know, I'd, I'd be interested to hear what other members of the chemistry department Thought about this professor's content and his curriculum as well because that's one thing for students to say but if your peers agree that's a different thing to consider
2: i was a teacher not for very long just for a couple of years so i definitely have feelings about the whole students are not really seen as students like they're seen as consumers like there's mm. this very transactional mindset often with school with higher education these days and I think that I really think it's a shame you know because it should be a place of learning and actually you know bettering yourself in the life of the mind and all of that and also for these students like who you know if they have aspirations to go into medicine like there's certain things that you know they just have to know that might be difficult to learn um i am in support of them being supported in that however Mm -hmm. i do think that there is a definite downside to this mindset of like i'm paying for this grade and like it's your job to make sure that you deliver me this outcome and i think that it's Mm -hmm. kind of inevitable like when the price of an education is of a degree is so astronomical You're going to have a lot more of these types of dynamics where, you know, I'm not saying that it's every student that did the petition, but there are definitely students that just do not like a teacher or Mm -hmm. they just they're not doing the things that they need to do in order to get certain results. But, you know, they're paying money or their family is paying money. And so they feel this sense of entitlement to be allowed to just kind of coast. And I personally, you know, not to go on too much of a rant, but I've definitely seen it play out. I've been in classrooms with classmates who have said really nasty, horrible things about like professors who were older, Mm. um, who were elderly, you know, and that were perfectly good teachers. They were doing a great job, in my view. They weren't really trying to hear what the man was trying to say. They just had it out for him. Mm. So... You know, not to go on too much of a rant, but I do think that there's a lot of overlapping issues going on. And like the more that you have these astronomical prices for these degrees, you're going to have more of this like I'm paying your salary or like I'm paying to get Mm -hmm. this A type of mentality. And I agree with Reese that, you know, if there's students struggling, you need to have other trusted people observe the professor i had to be observed and that way you know you can see what's going on and not just kind of taking people's word for it because they're disgruntled
1: and and yeah and to circle back to that i'm pretty sure the article says that there really wasn't like like a review process which can like for non-tenured professors i'm pretty sure they can just their contracts can be terminated for very like very little cause um and I, that's I'm not an expert on that, but don't quote me on that in any legal case in any legal, you know, environments. But um, yeah, I think that there I mean, I Jasmine, it sounds like you have experience in the academic like uh, academia from like a work perspective. And it's like it's pretty rough. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, I wasn't teaching on the level of being like a full professor or, or anything like that, but, you know, we did have evaluations from students and there was, whew, I, if my ex coworkers are listening to that, like there would be issues where it's like the same student would give like male teachers or teachers from certain background, like one set of review and then it was a completely different story, you know, when oh. they had a woman or they had a black person You know, so that's also something to take into account. You know, like I'm not saying students shouldn't be heard, but there definitely needs to be more of a due process. Like the fact that they seem to just kind of immediately go for dismissing this man Mm -hmm. when I mean I I can't I haven't read a chemistry book since a chemistry book has read me, okay? Like that was my (laughs) worst subject in high school. I took that regents exam, did not look back
0: that stressed oh.
2: me out just thinking about it Ooh, yeah. and like that was or- my least
1: favorite class too
2: and like orgo people i remember it was like notorious people would be like oh organic chemistry and i think it makes sense what he's saying to go instead of rote memory to try mm-hmm. to like can you figure out the problem and it seems like yeah. they wanted something where you can just sit and memorize stuff and get the number and he said mm-hmm. no we Mm. need to work through this and you had people in the you know other people saying like we offered all these resources they did not use them Mm. that's not right to then just let the man go Yeah, you know and imagine what happens if you're you know he's an 84 year old man that has a reputation imagine if it's like you're you know not prestigious or whatever like that Mm -hmm. can easily turn on you as well like well I just don't like this person yeah
0: Well, good luck at the next spot Or even getting (laughs) another job, sir Because uh, they don't want you no more (laughs) All right, y'all We gotta go ahead and take our first music break of the day This is a lovely throwback song Put you in a good mood It's called If You Want Me To Stay And it's by Sly and the Family Stone We'll be right back
1: If you want me to stay,
2: I'll be around today to be available for you to see.
1: Smile. Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org/donate.
0: Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn, and I'm up next with our national news story. This comes from a article on CNN.com. Um, the title of the article is "More than a Week After Hurricane, In Florida Residents Face Life Without Water, Electricity, and in Many Cases, Their Homes." The author of this article is Noran Salahe. It's been more than a week since Hurricane N slammed into Florida, but its effects are still being felt across the state as residents contend with closed schools, power outages, tainted water, destroyed homes, and lost loved ones. Many survivors are still in the dark or relying on generators. Statewide, more than 319,000 customers had no power as of late this morning, according to PowerOutage.us, many of them in hard-hit Lee and Charlotte counties. Florida Power and Light Company Chairman and CEO Eric Salegi said in Fort Myers Thursday, more than 2 million customers' power has been restored, with less than 100,000 without power in its servants' area. We will continue to work around the clock until those last remaining customers who are able to receive power are restored, Saligi said. Residents in more than 22 Florida counties also don't have clean running water. Boil water notices have been issued for 120 areas after damage from Hurricane Inn, according to the Florida Department of Health. Matlacha resident Cindy Walton, who returned home after evacuating to Miami, said she'd rather have water than electricity. If you had a choice between water and electric, give me water. I don't need electricity. I have a candle. I don't need to be out at night when it's dark, Walton said. She said the Army Corps has been Distributing portable water, but it's a precious commodity. The damage is also keeping many schools closed across hard-hit areas, and those planning to open do not know how many children will show up in class. Public schools in Collier County are set to open Thursday with the help of more than 800 substitute teachers, since 22% of the district's teachers live in the hard-hit Lee County, according to Collier County Public Schools spokesperson Chad Oliver. But it's unlikely all the district's roughly 50,000 students will return. Several families showed up to to a school donation drive Wednesday to say goodbye to their teachers. They say their homes are destroyed and they must move. Meanwhile, four school districts in the hardest-hit area remain closed until further notice, according to Florida Department of Education. They include schools in Charlotte, DeSoto, Hardy, and Lee counties. Sarasota County will partially reopen schools on Monday. Officials with Lee County Schools plan to make announcements regarding the district operation plans by Friday. Earlier this week, Lee County said the preliminary damage assessment found 54% of their schools were in need of repair and some may be beyond repair. Meanwhile, the Charlotte County District hopes to have students back in school by October 24th. Speaking on CNN Thursday morning, Superintendent Stephan Dioncio, said every single one of their school sites received damage and many buildings suffered roof damage. The kids have already dealt with so much, though the, through the last few days, that the last thing you want them to do is to have to learn in a whole new school because you got to send them somewhere else, he said. As families deal with stored, damaged homes and infrastructure, many families across the state are also grieving loved ones. At least 125 people died from the storm, officials said. 120 of them in Florida and 5 in North Carolina. At least 40 storm victims had drowning listed as a possible or known s- circumstance of their death, according to data on 70 people provided by the Florida Medical Examiners Commission Tuesday night. The death toll had been increasing as rescue crew comb- cr- rescue crews combed through the rubble searching for signs of life. There have been 2500 rescues made as of Wednesday morning. As those efforts continue, it's unclear how many people will be unaccounted for. When Hurricane Ann hit, it decimated some barrier islands on the state's Gulf Coast, cutting them off from the mainland and turning popular tourist destinations into sites of devastation. On Wednesday, residents were allowed to return to Sanibel Island, where every single home had been damaged in one way or another. Numerous boats carrying residents pulled up to shore and everyone was forced to jump out and walk onto the beach, unable to see, to use the damaged docking areas. Vicky Pasakali, and Julie Emick returned to discover the lower level of their home they brought on Sanibel Island two years ago was unlivable. This was our dream home and now it's gone. We thought we'd have a quiet life here, then Hurricane N took it away. Andy Garcia, the owner of a property management company, had to tell several clients what they had been dreading to hear. Their homes were beyond saving. It's totally devastating to hear them on the other end of the phone, just grasping for air, and you're telling them their home was destroyed, Garcia said. It's totally heart-wrenching for me. Garcia, who has worked in the area for 26 years, said he doesn't know how the massive rehabilitation effort will affect Sanibel's residents and businesses. Um, there's a couple more other stories here, but I think that's, that about sums it up. Uh, the last part of the article talks about the hospitals. I think that's important to um, consider. Ian's damage has also been straining hospitals in Southwest Florida. Sarasota Memorial Healthcare System set up a 30 bed tent facility outside this hospital in Venice, which is in Sarasota County, just north of hard hit Lee and Charlotte counties, to help with an influx of patients. A second disaster medical assistant team opened in Charlotte County to help reduce the strain on local ERs while hospitals in the region gradually reopened, a news release from Mer- Sarasota Memorial Health Care System said. Many hospitals south of Sarasota and Florida's Gulf Coast were evacuated and remained closed for several days due to the damage of the storm. Sarasota Memorial's Sarasota and Venice campuses have, been re- have seen record numbers of patients streaming into their emergency care centers and have worked closely with emergency management officials and hospitals around the state to manage the influx. So that's pretty much the content. Um, It's still going on. This article is from today. And it's very scary to think that we're at the top of hurricane season here. You know, so um, places like the Gulf of Mexico, Florida, all the coastal states that have dealt with uh, the effects of this storm. I mean, it's almost like they won't ever be restored the same and you know obviously um these storms continue to happen climate change plays a big part but i just wanted to shed some light on what happens after the storm you know the storm has passed and the news has moved on to the next thing and it's just really sad to know these these families you know their whole entire lives have been demolished these children will be out of school probably for the remainder of the year um I can't even imagine what I would do in this situation.
1: I think it's so tough too, because I, you know, you're, we, these are just happening more and more frequently around the world. And we're so tuned into these things in a way that, you know, humans never have been in the history of the world, you know, like there's been disasters always. And I think they are speeding up due to climate change. And also we know immediately when these things happen and it's hard and when them are happening so frequently as like a, like a someone receiving that information, it's hard to, you you can get numb to those things, right? Like it's like, Oh, there's another disaster, another flooding, like another fire, like, and, and it's, it's important to remember that there's people behind it, that it could very easily be you and maybe, you know, more and more likely that we'll all, either live through something like that personally or know someone who who does you know over as climate change worsens and it's tough it's tough to process let alone, you know and of course to deal with that is is heartbreaking as well
0: yeah
2: yeah I really it's it's hard to really absorb just so many stories like this that are happening like every day like I'm still seeing stuff about what's going on in Pakistan with the flooding and then with this hurricane and then what's been happening in Puerto Rico and other Caribbean islands because of hurricane season like it's very it's really dystopian and you know the nerve of some of these politicians to be voting against the types of help that they need you know to help the people that are struggling right now it's just so it's so backwards
1: yeah and like the politics of it for sure is it's not it's like not like it's not like I was gonna say fascinating but it's not like fascinating in that sense it's just like it really is crazy how like political goals can really just override like logic and that sense where, you know, in Florida, like they are going to be facing some severe climate change problems and are right now. And also, well, I remember, it was it the governor of Florida? I was reading, like, during Hurricane Sandy, he voted against um, FEMA relief for New York City, yeah. you know. And now, like, the irony of him needing that relief from a Democratic, you know, Democratic um, government, you know, it's, We're all just people, man. People need help everywhere and and politicizing it is uh, fucked up.
0: I don't know if any of you have either of you have been through a situation like this. I've never been through like a large national disaster. But I remember when I was growing up one time, our basement flooded uh, from like some really bad rainstorm that happened in Ohio. I think it was like partially tornado related. And in Cincinnati, they don't really get tornadoes, but in the middle of Ohio, of course they do And in the Northern parts. Um, and I just remember how long it took my parents to just clean that up, like, and trying to just, you know, stop the smell of things, um, from being sour and constantly running hoses through it. And like, you know, my stepdad had Um, a little music room in the back where he kept his instruments. We had our laundry down there, our bikes, you know, we had a a classic Midwest house, you know, nothing too big or anything like that. But that one storm really changed our situation. We had to go to laundromat. We had to figure things out as far as um, anything we had stored down there, you know, winter clothes, stuff like that. So, you know, that's, that's nowhere near the devastation that has happened for these people. I'm not trying to compare my experience. I'm just saying like, I can, my heart goes out for people who have to go through this year in and year out time and time again, especially people from the area who, you know, people, sometimes I've heard people say in conversation, like, well, why don't they just move? And they know that's going to happen. Well, you know, it's not that easy. Let me tell you as a nomadic person to just get up and change your whole life, especially when you have a family, you have roots there. Uh, you may be caring for elderly people, your parents or grandparents. So you know, my heart just goes out to everyone uh, in Florida and the surrounding areas. I really hope that more restoration comes sooner than later. I'll definitely be looking at ways to donate and um, yeah, just please keep people in your in your mind and your heart because it's, it's just so hard um, at all levels and generations of society to have to deal with this. All right, y'all. I think that's time for a music break. Obviously, I did what I always do and brought the energy down (laughs) fortunately the song uh coincides with the story it's called the storm will pass and it's by adam blackstone we'll be right back
2: You can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account, and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks.
0: Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Next up, we have our world news story. Jasmine? Okay, so this
2: is still um, relatively fresh news. Uh, this article was written in The Intercept by Natasha Leonard on September 26. The title is It's a Girl, and then in parentheses, Fascist. Uh, I'm going to read most of it, but I've cut some of it for the sake of time. Feel free to go back and read the whole thing on your own. Um, And before I get into the article, just a brief dictionary definition of fascism. This is from Merriam-Webster. A political philosophy, movement, or regime, such as that of the fascisti, that exalts nation and often race above the individual, and that stands for a centralized autocratic government headed by a dictatorial leader, severe economic and social regimentation, and forcible suppression of opposition. So unfortunately something that is on the rise. Um, Early this month, meaning September, Hillary Clinton made some embarrassing comments about the then forthcoming election of Georgia Maloney as Italy's first woman prime minister. The election of the first woman prime minister in a country always represents a break with the past. And that is certainly a good thing the former secretary of state said. Clinton has been rightly pilloried. After all, she was talking about the leader of the Fascist Brothers of Italy party, the most extreme right-wing party to govern govern Italy since Benito Mussolini's dictatorship. Maloney claimed victory on Sunday, so September 24th, um, night's general election with considerable ease, leading a far-right coalition that now holds a significant majority in both Italy's houses of parliament. Whatever break from the past having a woman leader signals, Maloney would also represent continuity with Italy's darkest episode, historian Ruth Ben-Ghiat noted in The Atlantic, and the continuance is very real. The Brothers of Italy's direct forebears, the neo-fascist Italian social movement, was formed by supporters of Il Duce after World War II. The idea that a woman leader opens doors for other women, as Clinton suggested, is, of course, laughable. That's especially true when that leader is a fascist keen to stop abortions and do away with employment quotas that favor women, quite literally shuttering women in the nuclear home while locking out immigrant women from Italy's body politic altogether. The media got this right much of the time, giving prominent billing to Maloney's far-right nationalism, but numerous English-language headlines focused solely on her being Italy's first woman prime minister. A fascist society is also a society of rigid class structure. A woman leader is no impediment to keeping working-class women in their place. Maloney, like her less polished far-right counterparts in the U.S. Congress, Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, among others, weaponizes her roles as woman and mother to police the boundaries of womanhood and reproduction. She has framed her poisonous anti-immigrant positions as a defense of Italian, in parentheses, white women's safety, conjuring well-worn tropes of migrants importing sexual violence. Her party's white supremacist platform is explicitly pronatalist, seeking to bolster the low birth rate of native Italians as a bulwark to ethnic substitution or what fascists here call the great replacement. Maloney's far-right coalition is expected to usher in more stringent abortion restrictions nationwide. Abortions which have been legalized in Italy since 1978 are already difficult to access in many areas Especially where Brothers of Italy has locally governed. Meanwhile, in line with the typical allocation of resources in Heronvolk democracies, Maloney's social welfare proposals are aimed specifically at Italian families, while excluding immigrants and those outside the bounds of the straight cis family. Maloney is thus continuing the legacy of what Ben Giot calls Mussolini's natalist obsession. It's no accident and certainly no surprise that Maloney paired her deeply reactionary reproductive politics with attacks on Italy's LGBTQ communities. Like Republicans in the U.S., Italy's first woman prime minister is a fervent enforcer of traditional gender roles. Brothers of Italy, alongside other far-right parties, last year voted down a bill that would have made violence against queer and trans people a hate crime. Maloney has consistently denounced gender ideology, a term used with increasing frequency by anti-trans ideologues, who deny the fact that neither gender nor sex function as strict binaries. Yes to natural families, no to the LGBT lobby, Maloney said earlier this summer. Yes to sexual identity, no to gender ideology. Yes to the culture of life, no to the abyss of death, she added, while campaigning on a platform that will endanger the lives of immigrants and Italian minorities. For those who would like to defend women's reproductive freedoms but not support trans rights, Maloney, like the U.S. far right, offers another reminder that these issues must not be disentangled. Attacking gender divergent people is as much a centerpiece of fascism as is pronatalism. And as with the Brothers of Italy's entire program, it's no less fascist when a woman says it. So, yeah, that's, um, I thought it was a, in, an interesting or a well written like op ed basically about this election, which, you know, was quite disturbing. And I immediately thought of a man who was named um, Alika Ogorchukwu, he was a Nigerian immigrant living in Italy and he used a crutch and he was murdered in broad daylight this summer Um, in Italy. He was beaten to death and no one stopped him from being killed. So this is the type of thing that's on the rise, not just in Italy, like the birthplace of, you know, the term fascism, but unfortunately it's growing here and in other parts of the world.
0: Wow. Um, The... The gender part of this is obviously interesting uh, for many reasons, but, you know, I feel like it falls in line with a lot of the stuff that's been happening, you know, forever, but even more as of late with white supremacy and, you know, the maintenance of the old order that is coming, well, trying to be destructed, but um, people like this obviously are going to keep it going.
1: Yeah, I I only heard about this, um, probably like the day or two before she was elected, which I think is interesting because stuff like this in the U.S. I feel like is like there's a two year news cycle where you're just constantly hearing about elections, and I don't know. My understanding is other countries work differently around that stuff, but um, yeah, no, it's it's um really scary and i also i really appreciated jasmine you're giving the definition of fascism at the beginning because i think it's one of those buzzwords that gets used a lot you know just like um nazi and just like you know like hitler like these things become cartoonish like like um like I mean, I use often, there are Nazis, there are very much real Nazis and real fascists and Hitler was a real person. And I think when you, but when you use those words as like cartoonish placeholders for evil or bad, like you lose sight of what's in front of you, which is the fact that there, you know, Hitler was a real person. He was a real man. He was not some demon like invented to scare you. And there are still real Nazis and there are still real fascists. And, um, you know, you got to, you have to pay attention to those things. The world is continuing to churn and, um, you know, these are, these are real human problems that you need to confront.
2: Yeah. And I, I did, I'm, I'm glad that you appreciated the definition, but cause I agree that I do feel that, um, people will hear certain things thrown around. And it's important to know what words actually mean, so that you can be alert to when people are twisting those words to be something completely different mm-hmm. from what they actually mean. Like I recently learned about this um, term called "accusation in a mirror," like where a person who has or a political party, like they have violent authoritarian intentions towards their enemies so they start accusing their enemies of doing what they themselves are planning to do so like even with the term fascist nazi all of that like think about the way people were talking about and are talking about vaccines wearing a mask it's like they're turning things upside down like in reality the nazis would withhold vaccines from people so that they would die unnecessarily It's like we, there's so many things that are happening and it's like this, what was happening a hundred years ago, just coming back around. And I I shake my head and think about it often.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's just, it is a reminder. I think you're right that like history is not, we're not at the end point of history at any point. Right. And we know that things are cyclical and there's a memory and a forgetting and, you know, there's a process of that. I know, like, as a Jewish person, like, I think that's a big part of my understanding of how the world works, right? That, like, and that's very much been my opinion related to this t- talking about fascism, too, in Europe. But um, the history of Jews can, in one way, can be looked at, you know, is, like, leaving a place, immigrating to a new place, um, getting comfortable in that place, you know, start, starting to assimilate, and then being scapegoated and forced, you know, slaughtered and forced to act, to leave, and just doing it all over again. And, you know, but it gets to the point where the old generation, you know, thinks that you think that you're different than the previous generation, you know, that that, well, that's history and this is now. But these are all patterns that can very easily repeat themselves, especially as, you know, the Holocaust survivors are in short number these days. Soon there won't be anyone alive who actually was there to witness those things. World War II, fascist, the rise of fascism the last time. Um, it's, it's tough to keep those things alive when, in the memory of people, when, um, you know, there are fewer and fewer people who were alive to witness them.
2: There's that. And then there's also the very coordinated, um, efforts to suppress, like teaching that history, like Mm -hmm. informal settings like yes i'm not like i'm watching the the ken burns doc about the u.s and the holocaust which is a super deep it's a new series and it's very long but very detailed and there's also this book i checked out recently called buried by the times like meaning the new york times and it's tracing like the way like how the new york times really failed in the moment like during hitler's Mm -hmm. rise. to be honest about what was happening Mm -hmm. And then there's so many other examples of that same thing. It's like, as a Black person, like, you'll hear some people making comments, like, as if we were better off in the period of U.S. history before integration happened. And it's like, that is a gross oversimplification. It's like, you cannot understand, like, the daily humiliation and, like, fear for your life that existed under Jim Crow and honestly think like that, that was a better situation than now. Like that doesn't, you have to be just completely ignorant of history to even think to say something like that. But we unfortunately are at a place where, you know, people that want to be revisionist, they want to erase these things, they want to downplay it. It's scary that they're being, they've been so effective that it's like people are the, things are not ringing the alarm bells that they should ring because they don't have an understanding of what happened before or like they do think that we're like at the end or that history can, can only progress and that's just not, we should know better than that by now.
0: The more things change, the more they stay the same. I think it's uh, definitely important to look at our past, but also acknowledge the fact that even with all of the changes that have happened, there's still uh, a nature of similar stories and similar energies and people who want to maintain things in a certain way. Nobody's better when they don't have the freedoms of, to live life as others, period, um, in my opinion. But definitely important stuff to continue talking about and not be afraid of conversations like this because I think a lot of times people don't have them and remain ignorant um, for lack of understanding or that they're going to offend somebody. But the whole shit is offensive. <laughs> anytime anybody is being um, put in a position where where life is hard to live and that's how I was trying to put everything all in one statement but it's really hard to even say that too all right y'all I think we did it are we at the end oh well ladies it's been a blast
1: it really has
0: and even with all the sad stories you all made me happy being there each week I hope you listeners understand the energy that we have behind the show and how passionate we are about the things that we talk about
1: and I appreciate you girls I learned a lot from you on our almost weekly journey for the last almost three years <laughs> two two and a half three years
2: yeah time is slipping away from <laughs> me yeah <laughs> Aww. It's been a ride and it's, mm-hmm. you know, not goodbye. Well, they'll talk right. to you soon. Yep. Um,
1: Absolutely.
2: And I guess you all listening, you will hear me next week in some iteration.
0: Well, that's it. Oh, <laughs> sad to even say the statement. Oh, For this <sighs> week's episode of Objection to the Rule, thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app or on Spotify. Please keep listening for more independent Brooklyn media. I, y'all, I'm sad. I know. I'm just like, I'm like, don't say it. Don't I say know. the final song.
2: Don't cry because it's over. Smile because it
0: happened. <laughs> like, Come on. <laughs> See, that's the way to turn it around. All right, y'all. Well, to end on a, a good note, the final track of the day is God Did It Again. Uh, it's by Brandon Anderson. We will talk to you guys at another time. Yep. Bye. 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 Happy Sunday. BGA One time, let's go. I remember the time When I was broken, didn't have a time huh? Almost let go, but you made a way Still had to regret. So stay what you gonna